Our reading today is taken from Exodus 17, and it starts at verse 8. <clears throat> While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands were held steady until sunset. As a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. He said, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything God had done for Moses and his people, the Israelites. He heard especially about how the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. Earlier, Moses had sent his wife, Zipporah, and his two sons back to Jethro, who had taken them in. Moses' first son was named Gershom, for Moses had said, when the boy was born, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. His second son was named Eliza, for Moses had said, the God of my ancestors was my helper. He rescued me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him, and they arrived while Moses and the people were camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and he kissed him. They asked about each other's welfare and then went in, into Moses' tent. Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. Jethro was delighted when he heard about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel 
as he rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro said, for he has rescued you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Yes, he has rescued Israel from the powerful hand of Egypt. I know now that the Lord is greater than all other gods because he rescued his people from the oppression of the private Egyptians. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron and all the elders of Israel came out and joined him in a sacrificial meal in God's presence. Amen. Better? Good morning. Um, I'm Ruth, if you don't know who I am, and I'm the Family and Community Outreach Coordinator here at Cairns. Um, and it's an honour to be sharing with you this morning. The last time I spoke, it was about Abraham in Genesis. And now as part of the Restore Project, we've reached Exodus, um, so I'll be sharing about Moses. So slowly but surely, I'm working my way to the New Testament. But in all seriousness, it's a great place to be sharing from because these first books of the Bible give us those fundamentals to build upon. And I love seeing how God's revealing his character and forming his people. As you've come into the building, you might have been wondering what these fluttery uh, tissue paper flags are for hovering above you. And the theme of today's talk is worship in the wilderness. We've just heard um, in the passage that Moses calls, calls God Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. And I'm hoping that as we dig into this today, these banners overhead wouldn't be a distraction, but they'd be a reminder, a gentle reminder and comfort that he is our banner. So far in Exodus, we've seen God use Moses and Aaron to free the Israelites from the oppression of the Egyptians, hundreds of years. There were plagues, we've seen the first Passover, which feels pertinent as we're about to start Lent and we'll be thinking about Jesus partaking in um, Passover with the Last Supper, which Mark shared about us, with us from John a few weeks ago. And it's this journey between God and his people that we can understand more about at this point when we have a better, under, when we have a better foundation to understand what comes next. But Moses doesn't know what's ahead. We're back in Exodus. God has rescued his people from slavery and they depart into the wilderness. En route to the land God has promised them. The land and the descendants that God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and here's a spoiler, which you probably all know, they didn't reach the promised land by the end of Exodus. We've got quite a few more books to go before we get there. In fact, Exodus only tells us the first year of their journey, and they won't reach the promised land until Joshua. Ethan shared with us last week that God, the great I am, was with them. This week in our readings, we've seen God himself is leading them in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of night, a pillar of fire at night, always traveling just ahead of them. He directs them, he provides for them. We've seen God direct Moses to use his rod to part the Red Sea. God's provided quails and manna to sustain the people. And at the start of chapter 17, we see God instruct Moses to strike the rod onto a rock so water pours from it, this most essential of life. And all through this, the people are moaning and complaining. 
They're happy for a short time, but they revert back to complaining that maybe life would have been better as slaves in Egypt because at least they had food and drink. And it's into this context that we dive today. The people have come to this place, Rephidim, which translates as rest or place to stay. And now they're attacked by the Amalekites. It's the first battle they face since their rescue. The place has been described by some as an oasis, which is perhaps why the Amalekites wanted to attack them here, keeping it for themselves. Even more astounding um, is the story we've just heard about the rock before, um, about God's provision and his glory, considering they were meant to be in a wilderness, yet there was no water. And what do we know about the Amalekites? They were believed to be a nomadic tribe, and they're descended from Esau, Esau, Jacob's brother who traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. They'd be a persistent thorn in the side of the Israelites, finally defeated by David in the book of Samuel. And the way the Israelites attack is particularly vicious. It's described in more more details later in Deuteronomy. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind, typically women and children. They had no fear of God. So when the Israelites are weary, they're attacked at their most vulnerable. And I wonder how often we see this in our own lives and walks with God. It's also here we hear the first mention of Joshua. He's to lead the men into battle, but Moses reassures him that he won't be alone. Moses will be up on the hill with the rod, the rod that they have seen God use so powerfully. So Moses lifts this rod high in order for the battle to go the Israelites' way, a symbol of complete dependence on God. A tool Moses has used before, but this time he must raise it for a sustained period of time. He must hold it up to ensure the Israelites have the upper hand in the battle fought below. But with his advanced years, it would have been difficult, and his strength drains and his arms drop, and the Amalekites get the upper hand. When we were younger, we were always... um, encouraged to help with DIY projects at home and the number of times that dad would want us to hold something that was higher than us, hold it still and then come on just hold it still you can do it and you're holding it with all your might and this is all you can focus on and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier and your mind is willing and then your arms start shaking and you know it's going to go and then he's like I've secured it don't worry you can let go I've got it and I think that's what the uh, Moses would have felt like when Aaron and her came in. They get a rock for Moses to sit on. They stand either side of him, holding his arms. Aaron is Moses' older brother, who has been by his side since they were in Egypt, petitioning the Pharaoh. Later in Exodus, he'd become high priest. Her on the other side, it's her grandson, who will later become one of the master craftsmen on the tabernacle in Exodus. What a relief it must have been to have this support. Unable to win the battle alone, we see the importance of the importance of the different roles that these men who had been appointed had. Joshua fighting below, Moses, Aaron, and Herd, her with arms upstretched, exposed, but also in a position of surrender, especially Moses. This man, Moses, who has led the people out of slavery, who can't raise the rod, who raised the rod at the Red Sea, who alone struck the rock to release the water, cannot win this battle alone. He must rely on those he can trust. And it's this beautiful physicality of this picture um, of how God uses his people corporately. All of them, arms raised, reliant on God. And how interesting that it's in this place, Rephidim, named 
named a place to rest or to stay, that they fight this battle. And Moses ends up seated on a rock, arms upheld by other. In this place named as a place to stay, these men have to stay, completely rest in God's strength. It reminds me of Psalm 46, which we prayed earlier. Be still and know that I am God. In the midst of battle, having to rest in him, trusting in God's strength, not our own. There are so many times that I found myself feeling that I'm wandering in a wilderness. And then I'm attacked at my weakest side. Cannot help but adopt the same posture. And there's nothing else left to do but cry out and raise my hands. On Thursday, Lord, I don't understand, but I know you and you do. You know what's going on. I trust you. You are the one who is faithful. And then the battle is won. And Moses' response, despite being exhausted, is to worship. He builds this altar to God, which would probably have been a simple stone creation. And he calls it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is our banner. Moses uses this reference that was familiar. He builds an altar. He'd have used materials that were available to him. Nothing special, special in the materials. But it's their use that becomes worship. And he makes this declaration about who God is. And this name that is used for God, Jehovah Nisi, in this battle, there's just no way that the people could have attributed a vi the victory to one man. They had to recognize that God brought them the victory. It was under his banner that they found themselves. And this concept would have resonated with the people because the Egyptian army gave the divisions of their army names of different gods. But now we have the Israelite people all united under this one banner, the banner of the one true God. The Lord is their banner. When God meets Moses at the burning bush, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. But now Moses calls this altar, this act of worship, the Lord is our banner. No longer the God of his ancestors, but his Lord, his banner, his standard. I love history, and I love this idea. I love, I love Tudors and Stuarts especially. I love this idea of God being a banner, like this standard above them. It encapsulates so much. There's this sense of God lifting, lifted up high above them like a, like a standard, like the banners that are in here today. They belong to God. He is the standard above them. And with that comes protection, sustenance, and power, all these things that they've witnessed since being freed from the Egyptians. There's this sense of mutual identity under this one name. They're forming as his people, as this new nation of Israelites. And there's also this idea of allegiance under the banner that they name God over them. They are proclaiming to the world that they're placing their trust in him. And Moses looks back over the last two months, that's all it's been, as God's been leading them, providing for them, and now defeating their enemy. And despite still being in the wilderness, Moses doesn't know how long they're gonna be in this place. There's still a lot of uncertainty. God's leading them, but when are they gonna to get to the promised land? He would have known that God's promises Sometimes don't happen straight away. His people have been oppressed for 400 years. He knows that they could be waiting for how much longer. Yet it's in this place of wilderness, of uncertainty, of not knowing that he's moved to act in worship, creating this altar and declaring the Lord as my banner. And it's also not about looking back. By marking God's hand on their journey and worshiping him, declaring who he is, it's a preparation for their future. We know later in Joshua's life that God will say to him, be bold, be strong, for I am with you. 
we know that he is eventually the one who will lead the people into the promised land. And here, God instructs Moses, write this down as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. The first time that he's mentioned, God uses him to lead the men into battle. It strikes me that God wanted to use Joshua here to give him a firm foundation, knowing the battle was won by the Lord, so that he would eventually be able to be unwavering as he led the people into the land God promised them. And when Joshua does cross the Jordan with the people to the promised land, they build a stone memorial to God and declare what he has done. Joshua saying, all the nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful. And although that they don't know what is to come yet, for me, this moment of altar building and declaring the Lord as their banner is a moment that would have started to prepare Joshua for that time. And we hear in Ephesians 4.14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. This is about a journey of faith and the Israelites are experiencing that. It's this building of trust and faith and dependence on God in the same way that when we pause and look back and worship him for all he has done, for who he is, it proclaims it to ourselves that he is our banner and we can trust and depend on him. It deepens our roots so that we won't be blown and it prepares us for our future. And next, after this vicious attack, we move into, from the Amalekites, we move into chapter 18. And there's a completely different encounter. Instead of one of war and battle, we have Jethro visit his father-in-law. It's, it's an encounter of contrast, one of peace, tenderness, and encouragement. But still, it continues this looking back at what the Lord has done. It almost bookmarks the end of this wandering before we get into the commandments and the tabernacle. This look back, seeing what God has done and worshipping him. We met Jethro, uh, the priest, Moses' father-in-law, during Moses' training as a shepherd, tending Jethro's flocks before his call at the burning bush. And I find it a great reminder that Jethro can schedule a visit to see Moses in the middle of Moses' wilderness experience. There's this reminder that they're not in the wilderness because they're lost or because it's so vast they can't find their way out, but because God has work he still wants to do in the heart of the people. Jethro goes on to later advise Moses, but we're not going to look at that bit. I'm interested in this section before because I feel like it provides this important pause or breath. It's a section that could be easy to skip over, um, but I think it's there for a reason. We hear the names of Moses' sons, Gershom, meaning banishment, and his second son, Eliezer, my God is help. Even in the names of Moses' son, we we're reminded of his journey with God. And we're told Moses' father-in-law, we're told, Moses told his father-in-law everything that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. Moses says they're rescued from their troubles. Again, he recognizes that despite the fact they're still in the wilderness, despite the fact there's uncertainty, despite the fact they don't know what's going to happen next, they're still on this journey, that they have been rescued from all of their troubles. They're completely dependent on God. And in response to hearing this, Jethro declares, I now know that the Lord is greater than all other gods because he has rescued his people from the oppression of the proud Egyptians. 
Jethro is a priest. There's some uncertainty about what he believed as a priest, whether he had faith in God or many gods. But at least there's this deeper recognition at the testimony of Moses. And he publicly acknowledges that the Lord is greater than all other gods. And now Jethro wants to respond in an act of worship by bringing burnt offerings. Through Moses' witness of who God is, God is glorified and they have this sacrificial meal in God's presence. So is there anything in this for us today? I wonder what our weeks ahead could look like in light of this story. We've seen the Israelites when they're weak in the wilderness, facing an attack. Yet they weren't alone. Moses wasn't alone. God brought people around him to uphold his arms in this place called rest or to stay. They must rest in God's strength. Perhaps this is what you need this week. Perhaps you um, need the encouragement of others around you. Perhaps you're in a place where you feel weak in the wilderness and need the strength of others to support you. We see Moses respond to God in worship, declaring who he is whilst he's still in the wilderness. Perhaps it's a time for us of wilderness. Perhaps it's a time when we're just feeling uncertain of what's around the corner. We can still worship God and we can still declare who he is, thinking about not just what's past, but um, preparing for our future, as God did with uh, Joshua. And then we think of Jethro, who heard what Moses had to share. He heard the testimony of Moses about who God was. And he declared that God was the greatest of all gods. Maybe our testimony, our stories this week are something that could encourage each other or encourage those around us. And I wanted to give us a little bit of a longer period to respond today. So Jenny and the band are going to come back up and uh, lead us in worship. But I was also really struck by um, how our face masks have stopped us connecting with people and stopped us worshipping maybe even. So I've put some Sharpies or some thicker pens on the table and I've got a box of face masks. And if anybody feels that they'd be able to, I want to invite you to think, think about your story. Think about what God has been doing recently in your lives, thinking about who he has been in your life recently. And maybe you'd like to write it on, on your face mask that other people can see. Mine says refuge. The Lord is my refuge. Maybe we could write it on our, on our face masks so that we can encourage each other as to who God has been. Turn this on its head, these, these symbols that have disconnected us and actually say God is greater than them. I'm declaring on the outside of my mask who he is and what he has been doing in this time of wilderness. Thank you.